Hello, everybody. It is almost the end of June, but don't worry. We are back for our 11th episode. Vivek, you are back from India. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm I'm ready to get back into podcasting. I am too. I feel like this once a month schedule for the summer is nice. You know, it's taking a little breaks and then coming back with another episode. Are you? Do you have any plans for the uh, July 4th weekend? Uh, just hanging out with my friends, honestly. Nothing crazy, but yeah, just chilling. What about you? That's how it should be. Yeah, family's out of town, so finding friends to kind of hang out with, but should be fun. And today's episode should be a lot of fun because today we are really excited to welcome Maya Mikhailov, founder of Savvy AI. Savvy AI, an AI platform, gives businesses the opportunity to make better decisions faster with the help of machine learning. Prior to founding Savvy AI, Maya served as Senior Vice President and General Manager of Direct-to-Consumer Fintech AI at Synchrony. Maya's previous company, GP Shopper, where she was a co-founder and CMO, developed mobile shopping and fintech solutions for retailers and brands. GP Shopper was acquired by Synchrony in 2017. Before that, Maya served as an adjunct professor at NYU, teaching mobile marketing and strategy. Vivek, I am assuming this episode is going to be right up your wheelhouse uh, in the AI and programming space, but it seems like Savvy, Savvy AI has a lot of applications to all around the business world. So I'm super excited to hear from her. Yeah, I'm super excited. Let's do it. Sounds good. Hi, Maya. Thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me, Eric. Hi, Vivek. What's up? What's up? Thanks for coming on. How's your summer going so far? Um, well, was there really summer in the Bay Area? I don't know yet. It's just starting right about now. Um, it's been like 60 degrees in Chile, which I think the folks in Texas would appreciate a lot right now. But um, it's been pretty good. It's been very, very busy. It's so much going on in the world of AI, so much going on in the world. <laughs> well, speaking of that, we have a lot to get to. So Vivek, you want to ask the uh, first question? Yeah, for sure. Let's get started. Um, so you worked as an adjunct professor at NYU from 2009 to 2015. Um, how was your experience teaching marketing and advertising in like an academic setting, uh, especially since like mobile was only starting to pick up steam when you first began? Uh, that's a great question, Vivek. You know, it was really difficult because at first you were trying to explain, by then the iPhone came out. So that made it a lot easier. Because pre-iPhone, you're trying to explain how this little itty-bitty screen that was like 140 pixels wide or whatever it was, was going to revolutionize the world and become the remote control to our lives. And nobody would believe you. You know, you'd pick up a phone. They're like, I don't think so. I play worm games on my Nokia. I don't think it's going to do much for me. Um, but after, after the iPhone came out and after people really got their hands on it, I think there was just this aha moment where people viscerally understood that this mobile device was going to be so much more than making phone calls. You know, even Steve Jobs, when he started advertising with mobile, he said, it's the internet on your phone. And that's the way he had to explain it. And then if you look a year later or two years later, all of a sudden they're saying there's an app for that. So even the conversation evolved. Um, but what I, what I think is interesting is the parallels between that iPhone moment 
teaching folks about how strategically important it was going to be in their enterprises to have a mobile strategy, to understand how consumers were going to interact with their brands on the phone, and what we're seeing today with AI. Because I think AI has been very much behind the scenes. You know, your package just arrives on time, or your plane's at the gate, or, or you know, your Netflix selection seems really customized, but you don't really think about it as AI. And I think with the launch of ChatGPT 3.5 into the general audience and 3.0, what happened is there was that same visceral moment where all of a sudden folks understood, oh my gosh, this, this is going to change everything. Like, you know, AI is real. I can get my hands on it. I can wrap my brain around it. Like, what is my company's AI strategy, even if it's not just regarding generative AI? Like, what is this AI thing and how do I become a part of it? So I see a lot of parallels in when I was teaching um, mobile at NYU and I was teaching strategy and I was teaching enterprises how to make smart strategic decisions with this new device. And at the same time, the conversations I'm having today with enterprises of how do you make smart strategic decisions and not just fall into hype cycles with AI. And that's, you know, that's so interesting. And it kind of relates to one of your other work experiences at Synchrony because you're taught one of the big things that has defined your career is how do you optimize workflows and make business faster? So you did this in academia, you did this in your previous roles, at least in your role at Synchrony, what did you learn about the potential that AI had to be, to be able to optimize this workflow? Absolutely. Well, Synchrony had already had an AI center of excellence. They had already been, you know, deep in the weeds of data science. So AI wasn't new to them per se when I came around. But I think what was new is the various things that you can do to operationalize AI across your organization and not just for certain use cases. You know, when people have thought about AI, maybe not this year, but previously, they had thought about it as this big amorphous thing like, oh, I can fold proteins with AI and I can self-drive cars with AI and I can do fraud analysis on a million variants with AI. Like that's what it's used for. But I think that when I came to Synchrony, my goal there was to show that also AI is something that, you know, product and business teams need to get more involved in. It can't be kept in a silo over here. It has to be something that's being used to power the products of tomorrow. And in order to power the products of tomorrow, we have to think about who in the organization can use AI and how do we get in, into more people's hands? Because it is going to be the competitive advantage of the next decade and beyond, but you can't have a competitive advantage in your organization if only a handful of people can use it. I mean, yeah, so like you obviously had a lot of experience before Savvy AI. Um, so what are like some of the lessons that, you know, you have as a founder that you kind of called on before your current, you know, situation? Um, and like, you know, what are those lessons that you look for as you founded Savvy AI? I just think one of the most important lessons is perseverance in any situation. You know, when we founded Savvy AI, it was literally before, the, just before the iPhone had come out. So we were, we were riding an uphill battle convincing folks that, you know, mobile and some of these digital technologies mattered. And then we ran right into the 2008 recession, like face first, head first. <laughs> and then, you know, when, when I think about those learning experiences of just sometimes the only way through is through. And it's a hard lesson to learn, but once you learn it, it gives you clarity and calmness when you see a situation occur again. Like with our current economy, you know, interest rates are rising, people are worried about jobs, and you know, there, there's uncertainty and instability, and, and you realize that just the only way through is through. 
And, and I think it's just that clarity and that calmness that comes with seeing it before and not being as scared to see it again. And that's a really good point. I kind of want to transition a little bit because I think when any technology comes out, obviously it takes a long time for people to wrap their head around it. But mm -hmm. once they do, it's kind of what's the return on investment with any of these technologies. And one of the things that I found really interesting with Savvy AI is that you are serving all different parts of an organization from, you know, business leaders that might not be technologically savvy to more product leaders. And so, you know, how can people that are not fully versed in AI, like someone on the executive team that doesn't have a product background, still use Savvy, savvy AI to their advantage? Absolutely. I think the way to think about AI is not to think about it as a technology. I like to think about it as problems to be solved and goals to have. The executive team knows what their company's goals are. They know what their company's problems are. Maybe not in the weeds, but they certainly know at a high level. So I think of AI as a tool. It's a tool to help you solve those operational efficiency problems, those personalization problems, those, you know, increasing revenue problems. And so when you think about participating in AI, you don't necessarily have to be a technologist. You just have to know what problem you're trying to solve and think, is there a better way to solve it with a learning system than with a hard-coded decision tree that somebody coded up 10 years ago that you're still running your company's business logic on? And the answer becomes really clear when you think about it that way is, oh yeah, there are all these opportunities around my company where I see problems. Those problems aren't being addressed because we've hard-coded our business logic of how to address them. That business logic is antiquated and doesn't learn. How can I design systems that are more nimble to and learn and are responsive to consumers and, you know, and responsive to changing situations in the marketplace? And then everyone can participate in AI, whether whether they're a developer or not. I mean, yeah, so there are like, you know, a lot of companies in the market currently, many competitors, very competitive right now. It's pretty hot, like as a company, you know, as an industry. Um, so like, could you explain like, you know, what are the ways in which Savvy AI is different from its competitors? And like, what does it provide that it makes, you know, makes it amazing? Yeah, absolutely. I, I If you asked me like a year or two ago, did I think I'd be in like the crypto NFT version of an industry? I would have told you no, but like suddenly it's become hot, hot, hot. Um, so the way we differentiate ourselves is first of all, like we are not a large language model. We're not doing mid-journey images or generative AI. We're about what I like to call the soccer mom of AI, which is machine learning. It's It's basically like, how do you get things done? Because that's what soccer moms do. They might wear boring mom jeans. They might, you might not notice them in the parking lot, but they're getting things done. They're getting their kids from point A to point B. You know, they're driving that van. It's happening. And what, how we like to differentiate ourselves is twofold. First of all, because of the machine learning component that we're focused on a specific set of business problems, where you have to make a decision, where you have to make a prediction, where you have to classify data, like those types of everyday business problems. The second way, and what, what I really think is one of our competitive differentiations is we help you with the entire path to production. What does this mean? This means that AI is more than just building models. And I think that sometimes when folks outside the industry think about AI, they think about it as, oh, I built this model and all my problems are solved. Well, for anyone who's actually tried to put a model into production and operationalize a learning loop, you quickly realize that AI is much more than models. It's an entire learning infrastructure. And what we provide our clients is that 
in infrastructure with a quick and easy tool to build AI apps. So we let people who are not experts, who are not necessarily data scientists, these are product owners, these are business managers, to quickly like build, launch, and manage their own AI apps in minutes and have that entire piping and infrastructure built in the background for them. They just have to drop in a JavaScript or two APIs and they're off to the races. So we've really taken a complex process and made it more easy and more accessible to a broader audience. And, and I watched one of your presentations from one of your um, recent conferences, which is very impressive, by the way. Um, and one thing stuck out to me, and this is coming from somebody that is not very experienced in the world of AI, so it might be need to be just dumbed down. But one of the things that you guys said that you do that is in some way unique is that unlike a lot of other AI applications that are built on these language models, you guys don't need any historical data to be able to run your processes. So could you, I guess, explain how that's possible and how that process works? Yeah, it's it's almost heresy to say that, that we don't need historical data because the way that AI is being done, it's so, the way it's being done now at a large scale is you have to start with the data. You have to start with cleansing, transformation, petabytes of data. So what our big innovation is as well, and Eric, thank you for bringing that up as well, is that we allow we allow teams to build an AI app with no historical data. So they set up the template, we give them a, a snippet of code, they drop the code into their product or workflow. We sit in the background and we help collect that event and causality data that they need so that they can build models. And that usually takes anywhere from two to four weeks. So here's a scenario where maybe they didn't have access to data. Maybe they had bad data. You know, there's, there's many reasons why data is not accessible to a company for a certain scenario. Maybe they never collected event-driven causality data. So they don't even know, they don't have a relationship between cause and effect in their data patterns. And we're saying, okay, you know what? Let's forget that for a second. Let's start with, let's set up a framework for an app. Let's get you that data collected and we're off to the races in two to four weeks. So just for like my clarity and like everyone's clarity, like, could you give an example of like, you know, an app that's been built with um, Savvy AI or something like that? Sure. So there's many apps that have been built for companies with Savvy AI. Um, we work a lot in the financial services space. So, you know, we work with payments companies on deciding whether to accept, reject, or review a transaction. So if they have payments running through their systems, um, we can help them quickly determine if that transaction or if a lending transaction will be paid back later. Um, we help companies with things like loan offer uptake, like that, it seems like a, a complicated term, but it basically says, if you've been approved for credit, Vivek, like what happens when they show you certain credit offers, like they have to show you offers that you're interested in or else you're gonna leave their site or their app and you're never gonna come back. So how do we present you with something that's a compelling offer for you to take? Um, we've helped people classify data. So they've had tons and tons of data where they had human beings classifying that data like income data. We've helped a client with classification of data. We've helped a bank with FP&A analysis, helping make smarter decisions about budgeting and forecasting when before they were using Excel models, and this is simply faster and more accurate, and it learns. 
So we've helped, I mean, what I think is really great about our tools that we can help in a wide variety of use cases. So like I said, wherever a business is, it has a problem where they have to make an operationally relevant decision continuously on a large set of data, and maybe they have a, a business analyst doing it, maybe they have a dashboard doing it, maybe they have a hard-coded decision tree doing it, that's an opportunity to let a machine be useful and let a machine learn. And you said, like, if someone has, let's say, a business analyst and maybe an entry level doing this manual work that could be taken over by a machine, for a lot of people, that sounds threatening that are not in the industry, right? Because it's, oh, my job is going to be taken. But I know that AI is more being built, at least for you guys, to be a tool alongside humans. So could you kind of take us through a situation where someone at a junior level would say, hey, this is a great tool for me to use, but I'm still obviously important to the organization? Oh, I mean, every case. So I'm reading this great book called Power and Progress, um, a, an amazing book that talks about the evolution of technology and how we as humans you know, assess the usefulness of technology and how it changes power dynamics, both in the economy and politically, et cetera. And one of the authors, he has a great term, he calls it machine usefulness. We should strive for machine usefulness, not machine intelligence. And how he makes a delineation is when he talks about usefulness, he said, we should strive to have tools that make our jobs you know, easier that take these rudimentary tasks that we have been like grinding through and lets us do higher level tasks, frees us and, and helps us amplify that innate human creativity that we have and that innate thing that makes us, you know, human beings that spark. And, and I think that's a really great way of looking at it. You know, I, I think machine learning and AI is not meant to be a human replacement. It's meant to be a tool. And there are certain tasks that people might do. I mean, even McKinsey recently said at first, they said, oh, we're going to replace all these jobs and all these jobs are going to go away. And then they're like, eh, now that we look at it, we think about 10% of tasks are going to go away. I mean, 10% of tasks going away is a far cry from like, there's going to be mass unemployment everywhere. So, so I think now that people have really gotten their hands on these AI tools, A, they've grown much more confident with them. Um, there's a recent study that I posted in an article about LinkedIn that said that once folks have actually used AI, they get much more confident that it's not going to replace their job, that it's just going to be an augment to help them do certain tasks faster. And that before they got their hands on it, you know, they, they overwhelmingly thought that it was absolutely going to replace them as a human. And then they're like, oh yeah, no, no, no. It's just classifying data. I hated doing that every day anyway. And now I can do these other things and I can actually analyze the data and have creative suggestions in situations where there are is no data, which by the way, is another thing to think about. Like human beings are awesome at like low data scenarios where there is no like historical patterns to look at. Um, and that, you know, we often call that human creativity where there's just like not really pattern recognition that we can like crunch over and say, that's what's going to happen next. Human beings are look, can look at a situation they've never seen before and say, how about X? And that's not something that machines are particularly good at doing. Yeah. I mean, I a hundred percent agree. Like machines have like a limited sort of like, you know, thing that they can do, but they can't really like fully replace certain tasks. Um, even at USC, like I'm currently a major in math. And I also have a specialization in AI. So I kind of have like a little bit of an understanding of like what machine learning is and all that. But I know like ChatGPT requires a bunch of like data, like servers. Does Savvy wow. AI sort of require that? I don't know what's sort of going on behind the scenes. I'm just yeah, yeah, we are not a large language model. I mean, the <laughs> operative word in large language model is large. 
I cannot imagine what open AI server builds look like. I, I, I think they're going to have to take over like a power plant soon. <laughs> um, yes, we, we still do require servers. We still do training. We still, you know, spend money on compute and we absolutely train these models. I think the difference is, is we're looking at a much narrower use case than the language, you know, their use case is I want to transform, I want to create language. And I'm going to have to train on as much language as I can possibly get, just like Midjourney needs to train on as many images as they can possibly get their hands on. I think it's very different when you're saying, hey, can you give me 10,000 rows of data? I can probably find a pattern in it and tell you what's going to happen next or tell you what you should do next when you encounter the situation so that you can get more operationally efficient. Like these are two entirely different use cases. And you know, you've obviously talked about the types of customers that you're serving and all these different applications. When you started rolling out the product and people, the customers were giving you feedback, what were some things that may have not surprised you, but helped you kind of pivot your product in certain ways? Um, I think there are a couple of things that, that really helped us refine our product. The first one was, is when we started, we had an approach of like, here, uh, at the end of building your AI app, you get these two APIs. Like everyone can work with APIs, right? Here's Recode, here's Swagger, and I'm getting real nerdy here. But like you can implement these get and post APIs and you're off to the races. And then some of our clients push back and they're like, um, so yeah, we can, but then we have to get in, into a queue for a backend developer. And that's going to delay this project by minimum one quarter. So, wait, what? And so then we evolved our product and we said, well, wait a minute, what's an easier way for us to deploy? And now we say, hey, you can deploy with APIs. Great. You can also deploy with this JavaScript tag. Like, do you have somebody at your company who's ever thrown a Google tag into a web page? And usually there's a lot more of those than there are in backend developers. And they're like, oh yeah, I get it. I have people in my company who can throw in a JavaScript tags. So we added JavaScript tags. And then another client pushed back and said, Sue, about those tags, like, let's say, I don't have anybody that does that. And we said, well, wait a minute. Or they said, let's say I don't have a product that's publicly facing like that. How can I use AI? And we challenged ourselves further and we evolved our product and said, oh, okay. Well, what if, can you give us a spreadsheet or a CSV file or like a Google sheet? Can you do that? And they're like, yes, I can do that. We said, cool, upload the spreadsheet here. We'll run the AI and we will give you the results of what it predicts or what it decides when you just hit run. Like no integration necessary, all front end, you know, interface. And, and I think that's, and we're constantly, uh, Eric, trying to evolve our product to make it easier and easier to get started and deploy. Because I think that that's, you know, that's continuously what's demanded by the market is like, I need to do this now. I need to do this like within a sprint. I need to do this as easily as possible using the minimum amount of resources possible. And so that's how we constantly challenge ourselves is like ease of use and usefulness are our North stars. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of like the product itself, like what are some of the ways that you guys collect customer experience and like kind of iterate your product based on that? Absolutely. I mean, in the beginning, it was just like getting some people that were willing to try it out and probably have horrible user experiences on our alpha and, and asking, I, I remember we did, we did some um, uh, just kind of user interviews where we quietly watched people use our product. 
like we were all on zoom but like you couldn't see us and we would just watch them and then it's good that you can see us because half of us were going like this <laughs> like they're like I can't find this button we're like take you take you know take us through what you see on the screen what you think you need to do next and and sometimes we'd get the feedback of I don't know what to do next am I done now um, so a lot of it, you know, a lot of it is, is an iterative approach where we've had a lot of great, you know, alpha and beta testers who've gone through a product who are kind of part of our core ICP of product managers, uh, and the folks who want to sell to and, and, and continue to, to iterate and continue to take customer feedback. I mean, when you start building a startup and especially a technology product, it, it has to start with an idea that you have that maybe your customers don't have. You know, it usually starts, especially if you're building something that's a little bit new. If you're just building a copycat of something else that's in market, then you don't really have to do that. But when you're building something new, you have to start with this initial spark of an idea going, the market might not know they're ready for this, but I'm skating to where the puck will be and not where it is right now. And you build the product to that specification. And then you sort of throw it out there. And as your company kind of grows and develops, you pivot that like 100%, it's all our ideas, it's all our suggestions to, it's all our ideas, all our suggestions with market feedback. And you kind of pivot that more and more as you get more market feedback and as you get more use cases and as you encounter scenarios that you hadn't even contemplated. Like, you know, some of our clients started using our products in ways especially with scenario planning in our no-code tool, we hadn't contemplated that could be a great tool for FP&A departments to do scenario planning. We just thought it was an easier way to get decisioning for different use cases. And they're like, no, you can actually use it like this. Wow, that blew my mind too. I didn't, you know, thank you. Thank you for enlightening me to that. So that, that's one of the things that happens as you go to market is, is you learn about these new use cases and you lean into what's working. And just to uh, from your personal perspective and experience, Obviously, as we've talked about, you've had your whole career has basically been in technology. So I'd love to hear what was the motivation for wanting to get in technology in the first place, whether that was mobile or now AI? Uh, to break my mother's heart. <laughs> so I, you know, uh, just a little bit of my backstory, like uh, we came here as immigrants to this country. Um, I was born in Russia. Uh, we were immigrants in the 80s. And um, when you're a child of an immigrant, and I can't say that all immigrant experiences are the same, but I've heard many of the story, you know, your, your parents are like, you know, we came here for a better life and you're going to have a nice solid job and you're going to be like a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer, and that's what you're going to do. And, you know, I'm going to make sure you're awesome at math and we're going to get this done. And, it, you know, I think it was my mother's dream that I'd have this nice, stable career, a nice, stable paycheck. Um, I, I was really interested in law. She was very excited about it. Um, I studied kind of finance and, and management as an undergrad. I had taken the LSATs, got a pretty decent score, um, was ready to apply to law school and got bitten by the technology bug hard. Um, you know, met up with some, a ragtag bunch of nerds who like were doing random gaming and, and hacking out of like the newspaper department of my school um, and just like absolutely was just in love with what they were doing because they were building things. They were like creating. And that, I think that's for me what was the spark and impetus is that that act of creation in, in a way, like I'm not particularly artistic. I, I've tried to make clay pots and they turn out horribly, but like that act of creating with code and, and creating new worlds or creating new products that never existed before was really appealing to me. And so I withdrew my applications from law school and I broke my mother's heart into like a billion pieces when I said, 
I'm going to go into technology. She's like, what even, what, what is a startup? Like there was no concept for her of a startup. And I was like, I'm going to go to first startup where it's like a high risk enterprise where there's like six of us in a room and we're going to go change the world. And she's like, oh my God, my daughter's gone insane. She should have like a nice stable job at a nice law firm, earn a nice salary. And I was like, no, rock and roll. We're going to do this. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of what I, I felt, honestly, for lack of a better word, ass backwards into technology. Um, but it, it was a it was a great fall and, and it was a great learning experience. Yeah, that that's a great story because like I've had a kind of not a not the same experience obviously, but very similar experience. Um, I was pre med going into USC, and my mom was like wanting me to become a doctor, obviously. And then I was like, you know what, technology seems kind of promising. AI is really promising. Like, you know, maybe I'll make the switch, and I did, and I and I have no regrets. So I have no regrets either. I have no regrets not becoming a lawyer. I mean, I, it, it's funny because I, I do read quite a few contracts, you know, being a startup founder. And when you run a lean team, you know, you try to avoid legal services when you can. And so I've had a lot of practice reading contracts. So I kind of, when I do that, I'm like, haha, you see, I can play a lawyer on TV. And then I quickly call our actual legal counsel and have them look at it. But um, but I, I, I don't have regrets. I, I think this has been an exciting career journey and a personal journey for me. And I think what I really, really love about the field of technology is how rapidly changing it is. Like, and not that medicine isn't changing or that law isn't changing, I, but but I think technology is moving at such a breakneck pace that you're constantly having to learn. I mean, you, you can't rest on your laurels and say, well, I knew this language, like I knew Ruby on Rails and that's all I need to know in my life. And you, you constantly have to adjust, learn, pivot, and and that keeps you intellectually, at least for a person like me, that keeps me really intellectually stimulated. And as you said, technology is just always changing. And that's what's so exciting about it. So in that vein, I guess the last question would be, what's the future look like for Savvy AI? Do we have any you know goals on the horizon for the next year that maybe you could share? World domination. Is that like a 12-month horizon is good for that, right? <laughs> um, I think, listen, we're, we're just looking to get savvy in more people's hands and, and, and really, because I actually get really excited when we talk to a product team who thought that they couldn't use AI or thought, you know, all AI was just generative AI and chatbots, And then we show them how they can take the things that they already have and the knowledge they already have about their business and transform that into purpose-built AI apps that help them just, you know, do their job better or accomplish more. And what really excites me is when we take them through a demo and they're like, oh my God, I get this. Like I've had multiple people come up to me at conferences and after demos, like say to me, this is one of the first times they're like candidly that somebody has explained it in a way. And I've seen a product that I just think I get, like I can get this, I can do this. And there is something very empowering about being able to get something and 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 upskill yourself, you know, and without being intimidated and thinking that you're not smart enough for something or somebody, sorry, you don't know linear algebra, this is not for you. Like the, there is a great feeling I get from that. So I, you know, my goal for the next year is to put Savvy in as many people's hands, as many teams' hands as possible and just watch what they create and watch how they learn. All right, well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, we've learned a lot today, definitely. And it's given me a new perspective on AI as a whole, because I, you've, you've explained a lot of use cases that I definitely haven't seen before. So yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to, you know, explore that. Um, but yeah, feel free to come back anytime. It's been a great awesome. conversation. Awesome. Vivek, Eric, it's been such a pleasure. Um, this has been such a fun conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.
Maya, we'll keep in touch. Yep, absolutely. Bye. Well, Vivek, I feel like I came out of this conversation and I now know a decent amount about AI because Maya explained so many applicable use cases that I had not even really considered. And so I loved it. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think she made like AI a lot more, you know, it sounded a lot more realistic because like right now there's a lot of speculation and I think that, you know, it's got to be toned down a little bit, but I think she explained it in the right way where it's like, there's a lot of use cases for business um, and like, you can really make things a lot more efficient that way. But I mean, it definitely won't like take away everyone's jobs. You know, it's, as you said, I think it's, I think that's like something like reassuring to know, because I feel like right now we're in this time where it's like, well, by 2030, like only 10% of people are going to have jobs that have jobs now. And then she's kind of counteracting that and saying, no, actually, like it can just make us do our jobs a lot better. Um, and I think that's a really awesome way to look at it. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. All right, Vivek, I'm sure we will get another couple podcasts in before the summer ends, but today was a great one. So thank you, everybody. Enjoy the next, well, enjoy July 4th holiday and uh, Vivek will speak soon. Yeah.